Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Matt Knight, who's the founder and director of Precium Buyers Agents. Now, Matt is based on the New South Wales South Coast. So we cast the spotlight into that area and we look at the property that he's buying and what are the drivers for that market and also the outlook for that area post the devastating bushfires as well. Outside of looking at that area specifically, Matt's one of those genuine nice guys that you come across every now and then and he shares some great tips on how property investors can further their property investing journey and purchase the correct assets. We got some insights into due diligence and all the little bits and pieces of the puzzle that we need to put together to achieve the best possible outcomes. Here's Matt. Matt Knight, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Uh, Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to getting you on, Matt, and I can't wait to delve into some of the issues that I know you're very passionate about. But for people that haven't heard of you or perhaps don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of an intro in what you specialize in? Yeah, so I'm uh, what's known as an independent buyer's agent and am the director of, um, of Precium, which is uh, probably one of the few uh, coastal or regional specialist companies uh, out there. And we, we try and help people find great properties, um, particularly on the south coast of New South Wales, but in a few other locations as well. We're going to do a deep dive into the south coast. And this is one example where I've actually sort of called up a map um, in, in anticipation of this podcast, because, of course, we probably hear a lot about the Wollongong property market, but, you know, the South Coast of New South Wales doesn't get a lot of press. Mm. But just give us a bit of background on the Matt personal side of things. What were the posters on the wall growing up as a kid? Ooh, okay. So there was back in, you know, a, a, in the... In the early to mid '90s, there was uh, a few um, Guns and Roses posters. So, nice. Use Your Illusion One and Two came out when I was in prime teenage music obsession phase, um, and I was learning to play guitar. So, Slash was a bit of a hero. And as I also learned to surf, um, at that stage, Eddie Aikau was a bit of a uh, mythic figure for me, a Hawaiian surfer who died trying to save some other people in a, in a very large Hawaiian Pacific storm. Um, they, they now have the Eddie Aikau Memorial Big Wave surfing event. So that poster was probably the longest serving poster on my wall. That's pretty cool. Sounds like you were born at the perfect time. Well, I, I didn't have a choice to be, built, to be born at any other time. So <laughs> That's true. Perfect time being- for me. Being yeah, being into being you know hitting your straps as a teenager and into guitar, you know, use your illusion, illusion one and two. They were big releases. Big they releases. were. They were. Yeah. How, how did you get started in property, and what was your first investment, Matt? So I was around eighteen, nineteen, and at university um, studying social work, which probably doesn't sound particularly real estatey, um, but was fascinated <laughs> with human beings and human behaviour and. And not all that interested in in the world of finance, but I did recognise I probably need a side hustle if I'm ever going to make some money and and kind of um, achieve some extracurricular things. And so started reading books and my dad and my brother were a a little older and wiser and we were all studying share trading and property and finance together. And I think it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which many people have probably quoted as as an important book for them that really galvanized my interest in real estate 
as above, as over and above shares. Um, and so I started saving at about 19 and a half and I bought my first property at 23. And that was an investment property up in Brisbane. Beautiful. And still got that one today? or is No, no, we renovated that and we lucked into a bit of a boom fairly early on. So we sold that. Um, we sold that one. Yeah. Beautiful. Now, you're based on the New South Wales South Coast. I mentioned before that I've got a map up. Mm-hmm. Um, Ulladulla is maybe one of the more famous areas for people to orient themselves, I suppose. Can you give us a bit of a tour of the area and some of the main features and, and towns? Yeah, certainly. So heading south from Sydney, you hit a, a very large national park, the Royal National Park, which which is sort of um, a natural barrier to to the suburbia that uh, and the sprawl that comes south from Sydney. And Wollongong is pretty well known, and it is a de facto, I guess, commute area to Sydney. A lot of people commute from there, and it probably takes about as long as it does from the far southwest or northwest of Sydney. Um, and so that patch um, is quite narrow because we have an escarpment to the left and the ocean to the right. So we've got a fairly narrow ribbon of habitable space heading down that coast. And as you head south, there are a couple of um, really kind of exclusive hamlets. Kayama and Jeringong are quite expensive and uh, have some lovely rolling uh, dairy country fronting onto the ocean. So they get um, the kind of the top end of town holiday makers. As you head south, the first major town is Nowra, um, and that's becoming a very diverse centre, regional economic centre for the Shoalhaven, and is has significant uh, naval base as well as uh, the bigger hospital. And then as you head south, there are a whole lot of beach hamlets, some small and some large, um, and Ulladulla is the first major town heading south from Nowra. And um, so, yeah, in the Shoalhaven all up, we've got about 100,000 people. Um, mm-hmm. There's about 300,000 in the Wollongong Illawarra area. So combined, the South Coast probably pulls about um, half a million people, but they are spread down the coast in little pockets. Mm. Um, and then it's another half an hour down the road to Batemans Bay, which is the next major town and where the highway from Canberra drops down the hill. So yeah, and by that point, I guess we're south of Canberra geographically. In fact, Ulladulla's probably right around Canberra height. So yeah, right? yeah, directly east from Canberra would be Ulladulla, but where the road physically pops down the hill is is just slightly to the south. I'm interested in sort of asking you the question about the Sunshine Coast and if there are any parallels because the Sunshine Coast has been in the news quite a bit as an investing hotspot. There's obviously a lot of attractions there. It's a beautiful part of the world. I'm wondering if it's sort of a similar distance to Brisbane as the South Coast would be to Sydney and does that mean, if that's true, does that mean that there are parallels between those markets? Look, I think there is. Um, and I think that the... Thank God for that question. <laughs> if you had said no, I'd have to... No, just none at all. <laughs> Look, I, I think that what, what I'm seeing and what a lot of people are probably talking about, some of the demographers in particular, your, your Bernard Saltz and the like, are, are noticing is that the coast either side of the capital cities, so in Melbourne, it's, it's Geelong on one side and the Mornington on the other. And in Brisbane, it's the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast. And in Sydney, it's the Newcastle stretch, uh, as well as the, the South Coast. Um, those coasts, either side of the capital cities, appear to be getting 
a real ripple of um, of lifestyle movers who don't want to be so far from the city that they can never get back, but they do want a better lifestyle in the meantime. So I think there's parallels between the Sunshine Coast and the South Coast. I think the differences are that Sydney's significantly bigger than Brisbane. So what happens when when people from Sydney flow or when Sydney prices push people out chasing affordability, there's a larger volume heading to the coast either side of Sydney. Um, but certainly there's a lot to like about the Sunshine Coast as well and it's had some great uh, infrastructure and things going in there. So I think, I think there are parallels. If you're living in sort of within 10Ks of Sydney City, can you move to the South Coast and live like a king comparatively? Yes. Good. Good answer. <laughs> um, so, and, and a number of a number of clients uh, over the years have uh, have sold property in the inner west, have sold property in the eastern suburbs, um, and purchased homes in in Kiama, in Gerringong, in Berry, in other parts, Huskis and Vincentia, really lovely parts of the south coast, and have been able to. They're not actually downsizing because the properties they buy on the south coast typically are the same size or even bigger than what they had in Sydney, um, but they are getting they, they're down pricing. So mm. I've had people you know selling a property in Sydney for one point six to one point eight and being able to buy something they're really happy with for around a million and pocketing the rest in the super fund. Um, but they the yeah that they aren't necessarily buying units on the south coast. A lot of them are buying freestanding homes. Yeah, right. I'm I'm wondering if we can sort of zero in on the South Coast and, and maybe try and characterise it as a, a lifestyle destination and perhaps you'll agree, uh, disagree with me. Now we talked about briefly, there's obviously the, the naval side of things, hospitals is a fairly big um, centre, but often these, these lifestyle locations like your sort of Port Macquarie's, I guess it maybe be in another example, they they they're sort of, I guess, characterised by a lot of retirees who typically don't set the local cash registers on fire. So mm. there's not as many job opportunities and that leads, say, the youth to move elsewhere. So that sort of, I guess, diminishes the capital growth drivers with a diverse employment hub. Do you, do you think that, that, that the South Coast sort of is subjected to that effect? Look, I think to a degree there's, there's truth in that and I think the thing that, that we do notice um, being south of Wollongong is that we do tend to lose our university students uh, on the far south coast but certainly Wollongong Uni has a great reputation and so we keep a lot of them in terms of from some, some go to Sydney, some Canberra but many, by, by far the majority, are hitting Wollongong University so they're staying in the south coast region. Um, yep. In terms of the, the lifestyle destination only being for retirees, I guess I'm living proof of the younger end of people wanting to see change because I grew up in Sydney and left 12 years ago. Um, and so we've, we had two children when we left Sydney and we've had another two kids since we've come down here. So we're filling the schools, we're setting those cash registers alight uh, with, with all of our various family spending. And I've actually shared uh, office space with some similar folk who, uh, one gentleman who I shared an office with for a couple of years, he ran a web design company in the Hills District in Sydney and decided to see change down here, shut the office, stopped paying rent, and he still keeps his team and everyone works from home. And he's moved to the South Coast as well. So there are some digital nomads who are younger 
there are some people with mobile work. Uh, in addition to, we already had some some of the FIFO guys and people who fly across to Western Australia for work in the mines who love living in this part of the world. Um, but yes, of course, the majority are retirees. I think the difference today compared to 20 years ago is that the average retiree today probably spends a little bit more on kind of that consumption than a retiree may have 20 or 30 years ago. So the coffee shops and the restaurants just seem to be pumping. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so they there's may that not spend, whole, yeah. There's that whole spend your inheritance marketing campaign that a lot of businesses have, have gone down the track of for these retirees, you know, buying that three-wheel motorbike on that margarine ads or what have you. Yeah, and we, we get a lot of them coming through, but we also host a lot of them who live here and then travel and then come back. Um, so I think that the the mindset of, of particularly well-heeled, self-funded, baby-booming retirees uh, is a bit different to a pensioner from 1975. Um, yes. So yeah. I, think, I think their spending habits are changing. It's slow, but I think they are spending more money in the local economy. And it will be interesting to see what the sort of traditional workplace looks like in a few years. I think we will decentralise from places like Sydney CBD as the the main place that people work and and obviously go to these lifestyle locations because typically you can work from anywhere for a lot of different industries. So I think that's something investors need to be need to be aware of when they're they're looking for properties. Sticking with the South Coast market for a moment and for anyone who is who's terribly uninterested in that area we will talk about some investing fundamentals but can you give us an insight into the typical sort of a-grade investments that you're purchasing in your area what do they look like in terms of the property type and price and yields and that sort of thing mm. so the yields um in general I, I typically tell investors to you know expect an average home in an average part of the coast to be somewhere around about four percent so the yields aren't going to set anyone's heart on fire just alone um, if they're comparing it to a much more regional town, something in the centre of New South Wales where you might be able to pick up a 7 or an 8% yield without yep. working too hard. However, the A-grade properties that I focus on with my clients are typically more active investors. So we are looking at renovators and we're also looking at doubling up our cash flow or our equity base through some small development. So uh, a recent purchase for a client was a pair of homes on one title in the Wollongong region, uh, and he is on about a a 5.6% return for that property, and he will look at splitting the titles so that they can be sold separately down the track. Other clients buying uh, houses with the intention to build a granny flat and take that 4% up to 6.5% yield. So for people, I guess with that Wollongong example, you'd need a reasonable amount of cash to get into a deal like that. But even if you're buying for, let's say, three or $400,000, let me know if that's not enough. But um, if you're buying at that point, are you still looking for properties where there is an upgrade available or there's, there's, some, there's some gap between what it is and its highest and best use? Yeah, the further down the price point that we go, the more we almost need to have a little bit of willingness to to do some improvements because for 400000 in the Shoalhaven, you're not getting a palace. Um, yep. It is still technically possible to buy in that price range, but you are buying older, more original homes um, in, in slightly rougher areas. So there's, there's definitely some work needed if you're going to go right to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the other 
the other client type for investing um, is typically a small developer. So they are buying a home on a larger block of land, but then they're looking at doing a development application and popping through, you know, two or three or four units on it. Yep. And how has the South Coast done historically from a capital growth point of view? So the, the South Coast has done surprisingly well and the averages are very competitive. What people do need to be aware of is that historically there has been some fairly long flat periods followed by some some shorter, very aggressive growth periods. So it's not as consistent as a Sydney market. If you're trying to look at the curve, it might look more like a set of stairs and less like a straight diagonal line. Yeah. Um, but over the, if you if you measure over the long term, it's done very well. I, I, I re- recall recently seeing a CoreLogic report that had the the top 100 capital growth areas over 25 years, which is a reasonable time frame, I think. Um, yeah. And there were three. There were three hits: two from Wollongong and one from the Shoalhaven in that top 100, where we we had 25-year averages over 10%. And interestingly, there were 20 suburbs sitting just outside the top 100 for the nation, um, with yep. averages well over 8%. So, a capital growth average over 25 years of 8% is probably not to be sneezed at. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, and you focus just on that area. I know a fairly broad area, but do, do you think that investors are fine to work within a certain location if they know that it does have good long-term fundamentals or should we be looking for the regions that are, that are in that top five or top 10%? Look, I, I don't really ascribe to, I guess, a, a hotspotting theory that says, you know, if you look at the last three years of, you know, double-digit growth, you should chase that market because typically property is quite cyclical. And so you can, you can lose by buying at the top if you chase those, uh, those numbers. I prefer to look at the fundamentals, meaning I look at the supply and demand constraint numbers that are actually in a market. So I, I much prefer to buy in, a, in an area where we have geographical constraints. So the reason I like Wollongong is because it has an ocean and a cliff and not much in between. <laughs> that, that does make it hard to uh, to find little greenfield subdivisions where there's two and a half thousand homes going in. If you look at the map, it's blue and then there's a little bit of a strip of civilization and then there's just green and it looks aggressive. Yeah, and there's a cliff there and that, that has <laughs> really forced, uh, along with the national parks that are surrounding the residential areas, the south coast does have uh, limited land that has been zoned for housing supply. And of course, they can do a, a rezone or they can reclaim things, but that's slow and it's unlikely. And so the, the constraint on land supply is one of my favourite things to look for long-term growth moving forward. Um, obviously, you want an established demographic trend, like you want to know people are moving there and not yeah. out of the area. Um, and, and, and yeah, so they're, they're the kinds of things that, that convince me that it's a competitive market. Obviously, for an investor who's got a significant portfolio, there are other factors, things like land tax that come into it. So it's, it, it can make sense to invest across a number of geographic areas. So I, t- I typically have investors who might buy two or three on the south coast and then the conversation happens where next and, and what's yes. another market we can consider to try and be a bit defensive and, and get access to some other drivers. What do you think some of the main drivers are that are going to put upward pressure on prices throughout the south coast oh, i love infrastructure so 
money being spent on roads, money being spent on hospitals, money being spent on on developments that will inject ongoing money into the economy. So at the moment, we've got the Shell Harbour, Shell Cove Marina, which is a $2 billion project, which is on track to be finished in about a year or so. Um, We've got the Albion Park bypass, the Berry bypass just finished, and the Berry to Bomidary Road bypass totaling about $1.5 billion they're spending on the roads, which the South Coast has never seen before. So that dual carriageway road is just going to make it so much easier for Sydney to head south. Nowra has a $500 million hospital redevelopment planned, and um, Ulladulla has uh, two major nursing home developments in the in council at the moment. One's over a hundred million dollars. So they're they're bringing in uh, beds for hundreds of residents and, and dwellings for, for lots of retirees. But then, if you think about um, you know four hundred beds of uh, aged care facility, how many workers are required to 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 continue servicing four hundred residents in an aged care facility? That's a lot of jobs. Yeah. Exactly, and of course, the trades involved in constructing all of this infrastructure as well along the way. Of course, yeah. Experts talk about markets within markets. There's a bit of sort of press recently where we were looking at, say, Brisbane as an LGA, and it's absolutely massive. I'm guessing the area that you focus on is pretty disparate from town to town. How, how can someone sort of navigate if they were looking at core logic data on the south coast, or you know, let's say the Shell Harbour region, how, how would we best navigate that? Yeah, so it's important to combine the data with some local knowledge. So if you if you can get to know some some locals and, and ask anecdotally what they know about various pockets, um, Shell Harbour is a really good example where there are some incredibly expensive streets, um, and there are streets where every single home will fetch above a million and a half dollars and there are other other areas that are still quite heavily um, occupied by public housing residents and you can pick up a home for four or five hundred thousand dollars and they're only two or three kilometers apart so Mm. it's it's very it is very disparate it is very different and it's important to have that local knowledge on the ground and to understand on a street by street level what each area is and who's living there because it's not necessarily reflected in the data at a postcode level. Moving away from the location stuff for a second, I know you're very passionate about people, uh, I guess, throwing a lifeline to people who would likely transact with the Spruker or perhaps purchase something with a bit of a lack of research and property investors are are certainly falling into a lot of traps. Can you tap us into sort of the the zeitgeist at the moment, what's out there in the marketplace and how in general your clients feeling when they sort of inquire or engage with you? Mm. Um, so I think that obviously we know that, that real estate has been an area where the public has a fairly low level of trust. That's been the case for a really long time in Australia. I think real estate agents typically rank second or third lowest on the, uh, on the trust indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we hope as independent buyers agents to try and, I guess, fix that somewhat. But obviously we're a small industry and we've got a long way to go. Um, the biggest advice I would give to people who are who are thinking about investing is is take your time and don't rush it and don't just buy the first shiny looking property that that you see a you know marketing brochure for. And buying new property isn't necessarily wrong all the time. There there are cases for it, but if you're paying really top dollar, there is 
it's important to be very realistic and understand that you could be losing money for a couple of years or, or flatlining for a number of years before you see really any profit from that kind of an investment. So for me, the, the, the value in buying ugly ducklings and the value in buying existing dwellings is that you really get to, to, to get in at or better market value as opposed to paying a premium. It is fantastic to sort of buy something brand new and shiny. I can remember growing up, you know, being into music. The only way that I could really afford a guitar or a piano was to go secondhand. You let some sort of sucker take the big depreciation on it. There's, I guess there's a lot of money being made with the creation of, of brand new property. And emotionally, we, we like the new stuff, right? But do you, do you think that's a, a challenge for investors to sort of get their head around? Well, this is not necessarily a place that I would like to, to live or show the pictures to my friends as my new investment property, but that doesn't mean that it's not the best sort of thing for their portfolio. Well, I, I typically get more excited by numbers than I do by the color of the paint on the wall. Um, and so I encourage my investors if they are like, if they're buying for themselves, it's different. You know, you, you, you buy what you want, you buy what you can afford and it needs to push the happy button. But if you, if you are investing and you want the numbers to make sense, then you really have to analyze the deal on a cash flow and, and an equity perspective. And I, I'm not against new property at all. I just like building it. So if you buy the, if you buy the house and you get the land at, at really a great price, and then you build the properties on top of whatever existing housing's there, whether you're building a small secondary dwelling, whether you're doing a dual occupancy or a triplex development, then you're getting in at ground level. It's almost like buying wholesale um, and you're still getting access to all of the wonderful, I noticed you used the word depreciation. Um, so you, you, there's nothing wrong with, with setting up to have a fantastic tax solution. But for me, the preference is to, to, to be involved in creating that, even though it's work in the short term, it can create a wonderful outcome where you actually bank some, some gains um, as well as then creating a, a really tax effective solution long term. Yeah, and I guess in pushing the happy button, we need to think about why we're investors in the first place, and that might be to self-fund our retirement or to be able to put our children through college or go on a cruise or that sort of thing. And the colour of the paint is not really important in that long-term term plan. Is, is that one of the typical sort of mistakes that you're seeing investors make? Is there anything else that you can point that you, you wish you could sort of, I guess, drill some education into people's heads to, to help them get, get through this, this process of purchasing the right property? Look, I think obviously people need to start with their budget and everyone can finance a different amount. But once you understand what you can comfortably finance and then you know, moving from there to, to eliminate markets. I do see some people live in perpetual frustration because they can finance to buy a $550,000 investment property and they're looking at $900,000 suburbs, really wanting to buy in, in those areas. And so they just, th those, those people typically will suffer from analysis paralysis for a really long time. And I've had a few clients come on my books who've been looking for property for two years. Um, that kind of thing can be counterproductive, I guess. So, so being really honest and realistic and saying, okay, I've got half a million to spend. Uh, where are the areas where I can get some decent stock for half a million dollars? That, that, that's a, a, very, a very pragmatic, um, logical sounding thing, but you'd be surprised how many people live in the tension of wanting a million dollar home for half a million dollars. 
Yeah, and I'm guessing as a buyer's agent, often you're sort of a, a psychologist as well. Perhaps the social work background is um, is pretty helpful for you. Yes, it, uh, it, it, there is a lot of listening that goes on and a lot of unpacking, I guess, those hidden drivers and trying to understand why someone wants to do something a certain way. Um, and that's part of why I love the job. And, and just uh, sticking with being a buyer's agent in general, I know that you're an advocate for, for buyer's agents and you've made the point about us spending time on researching shoes, but you know we'll transact or pull the trigger on big expenses with less research than we would for our holiday. How would you pitch the buyer's agent value proposition and, and why do you think it is that we have been a little bit slow in Australia of, of adopting buyer's agents as, as advocates for our real estate transactions? Uh, so I'll answer them in reverse order. So why have we been slow to, to take up uh, the use of buyer's agents? I would think th- that Australians are highly independent and we like to think that we can do everything ourselves. Um, and, and by and large, there are lots of people in this nation who are very resourceful and can be a jack of all trades. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing either. Um, in the recent bushfires, I saw you know people having three three different careers as as demolition experts, uh, builders, support workers, and firefighters all at the same time. So there's it's great to have many skills, but I guess you know for me personally, when I was a young fella, uh, my granddad taught me how to service the car, how to change the oil. Um, but these days, I pay someone to do that because I've made a decision that my times. Uh, actually really important to me and lying under the car getting dirty changing the the oil and the filter in the car is not something I have chosen to want to do and I guess that that is the the primary value proposition is um, there are some things you can do but maybe you shouldn't Um, so so you know servicing our cars we could learn to do it and all do it ourselves but most of us would use a mechanic um, and, it, and if they're doing 10 or 15 a day, they're going to see patterns, they're going to be able to identify potential problems that perhaps you wouldn't as a weekend warrior, right? Yeah. And so that's, that, that principle holds true in the real estate industry that there are some metrics that I'm looking for that my clients hadn't thought of. Um, and there are some patterns and some things in existence to do with certain real estate agents or certain vendors or vendor behavior where there's an opportunity to buy well that they wouldn't have seen because they don't know either the industry or the particular personalities involved. Mm, Exactly. And in answering that in reverse, you've sort of already pitched the buyer's agent value proposition. Is there anything that you would add to that? Look, it's different for every client, but it's usually some combination of they want to save some time, they want to save some money, and they want to manage their risk. It's, it's really some, some combination of those three factors. So, so the risk is the due diligence. It's knowing what to look for, knowing what, how to avoid a lemon. Uh, the time is fairly obvious, the, the grunt work of inspecting lots of houses and doing lots of research, it's training. And um, you know, saving money, it's very difficult to to really put a finger on exactly how much money have you saved someone when they've bought a house because there's no double-blind controlled study to compare it to. Um, mm. But I've had lots of clients who've, who've claimed to me that, that I've saved them a significant amount of money compared to what they would have done on their own. So yeah. that's, you know, it's, it's probably the most tricky one to measure, but, um, but it's in there. 
Yeah, of course. You, you mentioned just briefly as well the, the jack-of-all-trades with the bushfires and that sort of thing. Now, we, we spoke off off air about um, your personal experiences with that and it got very, very close to where you're at and being evacuated and, of course, your community was very well um, impacted by that. If you look at the map, you see that, you know, really the the Shoalhaven region is really hemmed in by bushland, which of course makes it very beautiful, but it's a, uh, obviously been absolutely hammered by the bushfires, um, as have been a lot of other places in Australia. H- how do you see that impacting the local communities from an economic point of view and rebuilding and that sort of thing? I know that there are, there are human stories in there that are far more important, but I'm interested in the implications for property as well. Mm. Look, it is really it is really interesting to to try and predict what it will do to markets, um, it, and the human stories are very real. And I and I do have a couple of personal friends who who lost homes, and I am aware of one or two families I know as acquaintances who actually lost homes and were uninsured. So so there's certainly some people doing it tough, um, but on a broader market level, we now have essentially uh, on, uh, the South Coast has. 380 odd homes that will be rebuilt and I'm aware of a number of builders that are planning to relocate into our area with their teams specifically to cash in on that building boom Um, because that's a significant number of homes that will need to be rebuilt and will be by and large funded by the insurance companies. Um, the, the, The nature of some of those postcodes and some of the areas that have uh, really idyllic locations that were burnt out um, that some of them had very basic uh, old 50 year old fishing cottages on them looking over the water and they will now have McMansions built so there'll be some areas that will do quite well I think out of out of a three to five year capital growth uh, type perspective even though at this moment they still look quite disheartening if you drive through them uh, but on, on the whole, I think that it will be it, it will create a significant amount of industry just through the sheer number of homes that need to be built and through how tight the rental market has already become anecdotally. Um, obviously, a number of people have had to have had to move into rental accommodation and will get rent assistance for that. So I expect some upward pressure on rents, um, although exactly how much is is really tricky to predict. And the insurance companies are the ones wearing that anyway, so it doesn't actually impact the the displaced people that the, they're going to have to worry about the rents going up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, and look, so, so there, there's there's definitely going to be some economic uh, fallout, which some you know there may be a few families who decide to move out of the area, so that that would be you know less less up create less upward pressure on the market. But there are a lot of people who are planning on staying. From a community perspective, I couldn't be I couldn't be prouder of what I saw in terms of the literally hundreds and hundreds of people volunteering in all kinds of ways at the evacuation centres, at the distribution centres, people housing strangers, um, people pulling out their food and feeding people, people walking up and down the highway when it was gridlocked, just giving people pieces of fruit and, and bottles of water. Like it, I, I haven't seen. Um, humans behave like that really up close and personal before and it was I think I think in time it will become something of a time of folklore and and we'll tell some really interesting stories looking back at this moment 
I think that's beautiful, and it and it is terrible how often these tragedies are the way that we are, the only way that we get to see this sort of side of humanity banding together. But there's some there's some fantastic examples of that, and I think that obviously shows there's there's pride in the community and the area that you live, which has implications as well. But yeah, very devastating time for the the residents and and of course the the wildlife population as well. Um, Changing directions, if if you wouldn't mind for a second, I sure. wanted to 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 point to something that you have as part of your website, which was a fourteen point property buyers cheat sheet. Um, now, after the previous topic, this feels like we've just gone from a newsreader talking about a natural disaster to a squirrel, you know, on a water ski. But um, I do want to get back to, to property investing. Can you run us through a handful of, of some of those key points that, that you're actually identifying to help people avoid the painful mistakes that people can expose themselves to do investing in property? Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, I'll just, just pick a couple because um, of time. I think that the biggest thing people can do at the front end is to actually just stop and think before you rush into a purchasing decision. And that goal setting process around thinking about what it is you actually want to achieve and what kind of a portfolio do you think you're gonna be looking at in 20 years time? And, and what's that going to look like for you as a human? Those, those goal setting conversations are really important. And I encourage, um, if it's a couple, ringing me and they haven't thought through that i'll usually hit them with some hard questions and send them away to have some some really tricky conversations about that because it's surprising how different each person's goals are and some people want to live in europe and drive the maserati and have a a really really conspicuous consumption high cost lifestyle and lots of people don't want that lots of people want either the ability to to give generously or to care for their grandkids or to just have a very simple existence, but to know that there's no debt there. So, so it's really important to clarify goals first. And I think that really every extra minute that you spend thinking about what you want at the beginning is probably worth, you know, 10 times the value that you've invested in later on. I think that being realistic about 0.5 on the sheet is roadblocks. So being willing to name the, the things you don't want to do, the, the, the money that you don't have, the, if, you, if you don't want to renovate or develop or build, to, to really be clear on what things you plan on not doing um, because those, eliminating those things will make your path much clearer. And I think being willing to at least spend some time in the metrics or in the research to pick an area that you, it doesn't have to, end up on the front page of the paper next week as the latest hotspot, but it has to be an area you're comfortable holding for a long time. So you have to at least be as convinced enough of the metrics that you go, you know what, I can sleep at night knowing that, you know, I'm going to hold this property for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. And at the time that I bought it, I honestly believe there were enough indicators that it was going to do going to do well, either through growing rents or growing prices. So those metrics um, I spend a lot of time with clients at the front end talking about what metrics matter to you and what metrics are you looking at to really create the portfolio that you want. And then we try and reverse engineer the decisions um, in terms of what we're actually going to buy. Love it. I think that's some absolutely awesome advice. 
I'm interested to know where you've been sort of finding the the most success for your investors, perhaps not necessarily locations, but of the, the people that you've worked with that have either engaged you or that you've come across, where where are people sort of clear on their goals and actually actually you know ticking them off and, and getting some great results and what 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 is interesting about those people that uh, that other people could learn from look it's only one subset of the investors that I take on but I've had uh, I seem to have had a number of investors probably it, it was a I think it was a factor of 2019 having the Royal Commission and the federal election and so there was a lot of fear in the market the, the people who were willing to invest last year, they typically were um, more your engineering type mindset, very analytical, very focused on the numbers. And they were, they were the kind of people who were able to push past the fear factor that was in the media last year. Yep. And the numbers that they focused on were almost always cash flow. So I just, through a natural process of attrition last year, typically found myself trying to purchase high cash flow properties for people. And I found that I've got a number of clients who are very happy because they purchased properties with an above 5% yield um, yeah. on the gross cash flow. Somewhere between 5 and 7% was typically the number because we weren't going into far-flung regional towns. We were sticking to the coast or we were sticking to the major centres, but we were really trying to find those um, duplex pairs or those small blocks of flats and that sort of thing. So we were really chasing cash flow and every single one of the investors who bought those those properties with a, a gross yield above 5% has come back to me without me asking them. They've come back and said, yeah, we're really, really happy with this. And, and we're yeah. in a position now where our serviceability is great and the bank says we can borrow more money. Yeah. What else have you got? Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you see as the future for the South Coast market and, and the property market in general? I know that's a very big question but I guess just from a, a sentiment point of view where you see interest rates or any of the other main drivers for transacting in investment properties or, or even owner occupiers that influence the overall price of real estate across Australia and the south coast yeah look I, I, I wouldn't claim to be you know smarter than the nation's economists and and the people who predict such things. But I do note from the RBA release the other day when they kept interest rates on hold um, that they did make a number of comments and I, I noticed that they said they think that interest rates are low and appear to be staying low. The resource sector, the mining sector, appears to be re recovering a little stronger than people predicted. Um, that residential construction is still... Obviously, there's certain parts of the market that are still in pain, those, those capital city towers that struggled during the Royal Commission when um, a number of people uh, couldn't complete. But on a whole, the residential construction industry, they see it uh, recovering. And unemployment is, is low and actually fell in December. So yep. really, if I add that to the other major number that interests me, which is our immigration rate, which appears to be high and staying high, I'm I'm quite bullish on property general, nationwide um, with low rates, with low unemployment and high immigration. I don't know what there is not to like. Yep. And for the South Coast? For the South Coast, um, look, it, we are still getting people moving here. Um, younger people by choice for lifestyle and plenty of retirees as well. 
and we have that uh, infrastructure spend on the roads, on the hospitals and on the aged care facilities. So I personally think the next, you know, three to five years in the market here will be will be positive. Um, but, yeah, I, I try not to crystal ball too much. It, it, it hurts, my, hurts my brain. So if we're taking a long-term view, I mean, these sorts of things don't don't matter. And if you've got the patience, you can you can find a, a good quality asset if you've got someone that's either advocating for you or you're doing your your best research what what sort of time frame would you normally set as a i guess a period to see whether a, a purchase is successful or not from a capital growth point of view is it is the old sort of seven to ten year rule the the, the best way to look at it i certainly encourage people to think about things from a longer term perspective um you you can certainly look at shorter time frames but the shorter your time frame the higher the risk that you won't achieve it and so you really if you're going to expect capital growth in one or two years you really need to know why it is that you can expect that um, yep. and personally i like to see market gains as a bonus if that's what you're thinking if you if you're expecting to be able to refinance in 12 months um, because you've made 20 percent well, my question to an investor then is, okay, what are we doing to add that 20% on? Because the market will grow eventually, but it's very difficult to predict when. Yes. And, and so that's where we, we usually revert back to some of those active strategies, renovations, developing, that sort of thing. Speaking of these strategies, Matt, if people want to get in contact with you to have a chat, what's the best way to do that? Look, probably the website at prusium.com.au. Um, otherwise, I am on Instagram uh, at Prusium Property, I think is the handle, and also on Facebook just by searching for Prusium. Um, any of those will work. And, uh, yeah. Beautiful. Now, just to finish off, Matt, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors, what would that be? Look, slow down and think. Um, before you make a decision to purchase or to sell and just continually remind yourself of why you're doing this and look at those goals um, and, and check with yourself uh, how, that, how they're going. Um, and look, in, in terms of the due diligence process while buying, um, so that first thing would be the, the overall advice for people who are thinking about making portfolio decisions. In terms of when you're in the middle of the process, I think the single biggest thing I see that people come a cropper with is fear. Um, so it's about learning how to manage your own fear, learning how to find a pathway through it when you're in the middle of a purchasing process or a due diligence process or you've just had an offer accepted, emotions run high. And it's really important to have a set of steps to take yourself through to know, is this fear just fear or is this you know, my gut telling me there's actually a lot of things very wrong with this property. Beautiful. I think that's absolutely sound advice and you can't go wrong prescribing to that one. Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Mike. Cheers.